Today we've got James Poulter on the show. James is based out of the UK, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Vixen Labs and Voice2. He's also a program director at Voice Summit AI, one of the biggest voice conferences in the world. James has a much different perspective on voice and voice technology than what a lot of people think of when they immediately turn to Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant. So you've been heavily involved in the voice community. It seems like very recently you're very involved. When was it that you first started dipping your toes and getting involved in the voice space? Yeah, so I suppose because voice, um, when people talk about voice, they immediately go to Alexa and Google Assistant, smart speakers. I think of it in a much more broader sense around voice and audio content in particular. Um, So you could say that I've been in it for a long time because I've been a podcaster and radio producer for many years and, and podcasting. I had a podcast production company in 2007, so I was a bit early uh, to the space. But re- in earnest, I suppose, since the smart speaker market, um, we started doing our first tests of um, products uh, at Lego in early 2017. So about two years now, I've been kind of involved in trying and testing different things, um, which is about as long as anyone could have been, really, particularly in the UK, as it took a little while longer than here in the US for uh, the products to a, be available and secondly, be able to develop for them. So it's been about two years now. Um, And we got started a lot in thinking about how conversational interfaces overall might change the way in which consumers and businesses interact with one another. Because we've all, you know, kind of gotten so used to having kind of screens and apps and websites and these things that we just tap and swipe and touch all the time that when we want to talk to something, it has an entirely different way of being with you it becomes an entirely different experience Uh, and so that's what got me interested so we started out doing uh hacks around uh facebook messenger bots and things for whatsapp and wechat um in china and then you know began to look at the voice platforms as a way of augmenting some of those conversational interfaces we were designing for screen-based technology and taking those into the audio space and then you know my love of audio comes from like i say a long history with radio and podcasting and just the love of the spoken word and so just trying to kind of live with how that might change the way in which people interacted with um, these products as they came into their homes. So it's funny you say that because when you look at the first television advertisements, what you find is that they're pretty much radio advertisements. Like people hadn't really figured out how to utilize that medium yet. What do you think are the things people haven't discovered yet? Because these first TV ads were someone just standing there saying exactly what they would have on the radio super awkwardly. What are people missing that would kind of help them skip up a few years in the voice space in terms of advertising? Well, in advertising specifically, I think a lot of people are seeing this as a medium of radio plus interactivity. Yeah, which is kind of true that there is an interactive element to it. The thing that most brands aren't used to doing, though, is trying to, what a lot of people are doing is like taking what they've been doing on social media, for example, and trying to transpose it into the voice space because that's become the most dominant advertising medium of, of late uh, or at least the newest platform that everyone's learned around. And most of the marketeers that are senior enough to make these decisions now have come through the ranks 
learning and perfecting their craft around social media and now trying to bring that into the voice space. Which there's a lot to be learned there because it is a, a platform where you directly engage with consumers. So there's something to be taken from that medium into voice. But the thing that most people have then forgotten is that you're talking about an audio based medium. And so things like sonic branding, idents, jingles, beds, the voices that you use to be the voice of these things actually need a lot of consideration because most brands don't have an audio brand. They don't have an audio signature, for example. You could probably name three or four of them on the back of your hand, the ones you can remember. Da 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 da. Mm -hmm. You know who I'm talking about. Or dun 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 dun. You know what these things are. Can you name many others? Not many. And so the, the point is that actually when you transpose your brand into an audio medium, there's a whole different game that you've got to play with. How will you be remembered? What will you be remembered for? And particularly, what will you sound like is a massive question. Will it your voice, the voices you use, will they be male, female, will they be old, or will they be young? Like, for example, coming from Lego at a kid's brand, do kids want to hear from other kids or do they want to hear from adults? Um, if you are a you know, kind of women's care brand, you know, how old should the woman be that's talking? Or is it a woman? Have you got a spokesperson that you can use? And then things like celebrities and influencers, you know, how long do you want to, a celebrity or an influencer to be the voice of your brand? We've seen that go wrong many times before in the uh, video advertising you know, kind of context. And we're expecting much more dynamic context. Like back when it was printed, the newspapers were all printed on the same paper in the exact same style, shipped night nationwide then with the television okay some televisions were a little bit smaller and some were bigger but it was the same image you're, you're just scaling the image based on the size of the screen with mobile then we started to have okay let's build a mobile first experience that then when it's on the ipad all of the elements rearrange and then when you get on a web page you have those elements rearrange themselves in a different way with voice we can think about like you said the branding and how we apply our brand how is our brand show through just on a voice environment how does it show through if we have the screen? Are we showing a little avatar on there to tell the story? The last session I was sitting in this morning was one of the storytelling breakout sessions, and she was just talking about what it is that customers enjoy, how they enjoy, how they want to build stories. She was talking that voice right now is in the Pong stage of being able to really brand for your business. It's like... Yeah. When you bought Pong the first time, the only thing it did was play Pong. You bought an entire console that was just Pong. We as technologists are very frustrated because we're limited by the capabilities of the platforms. Yeah. We can't fully express ourselves as brands. But for you, what have been the big ways that you've been able to show brand in, in how you've been building apps, whether that's a customized voice, using the screens? Yeah, so I think you know, thinking about the identity that you want to portray um, in these experiences, using real audio and using the real voices is a really important first step, I think. But thinking about longevity as the kind of barrier to that, right? So if you go and record a, a bunch of original audio for an experience, but then want to change it, that's going to be a lot more work, a lot more cost, and a lot more investment of time than just tweaking the text that Alexa or Google Assistant is reading to you, go and mess with the SSML or whatever you want to do to make it sound a little bit different. It's a lot less agile in the way in which you work, but it's a lot better at cementing the brand identity, you know, because when Alexa is reading all of these different things to you, how do you stand out with, a, with just one voice when it's communicating something to you? The thing that I'm interested in, it, there's a kind of psychological question, is that over time, you know, we, all tr we all trust recommendations from people that we know and love, right? We know that if you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer Survey, which is the kind of big look at consumer trust every year, is that above anyone else, the thing that you trust the most is a recommendation from a friend. And what is a friend? Well, it's someone that you know, that you grow to know over time, 
time that you talk to a lot, that you hear a lot, and you get used to the sound of their voice. And so when something is recommended to you by them, you trust it. Mm. It's an interesting question is that the longer that we have these things in our houses and homes and cars and everywhere else is that will you begin to trust what Alexa recommends to you more often than not? Mm. And so there's a balance there of like thinking about, well, how do I create something that stands out as a, as a voice and a brand experience? that doesn't seem interruptive in my day because I'm welcoming this thing into my home, into my most personal space. And crucially, not just onto a screen that I'm holding, but it's literally shouting out loud into my living room or kitchen, which is quite an interesting dynamic, versus the voice that you have agreed to have come into the home, which is Alexa or which is the Google Assistant of voice. So I don't think we have the entirely, you know, kind of cemented answer right now. It's very early in the genesis of this whole process. We're not even at the end of the beginning. But what we are seeing is that there's kind of multiple routes of kind of bringing brand through. Um, original audio is one, tweaking the SSML to make sure that the voices sound more naturalized, uh, using audio signatures and idents to kind of make your brand stand out without it seeming too interruptive. You know, there's, there's going to be a lot of balance in that. I was listening to an interview with someone from the Alexa team, and they were talking to go on what you said about friends, and you, you trust what your friends are saying. He was talking about how each of the devices that we have in our homes are different friends, and we don't always want to talk to the same friends about the same problems that we have. If my problem is I want to learn about the news, I might want to talk to my Google Home Hub because it's got a screen and it's going to show me video feedback. Whereas if I am just wanting to set a timer, maybe I just want to talk to the friend that doesn't have a screen. Because like you said, screens are distractions and it's another thing to just keep me unen unengaged from my environment that I'm working in right now. So I totally agree. Bunch of friends. Each one is able to build its own rapport with me as a person by them being in my home. You have such a diverse portfolio of what you're involved with right now in voice. I would love to dive in yeah. to a little bit of this, of what it is you're working on right now. So out of all of the projects you're working on, which, which of these would you say you're spending the most time on right now? So I'd say it's a pretty um, even split right now because we're in now real ramp up mode between Vixen Labs, which is my main uh, gig, I suppose, um, of where I'm CEO and co-founder with my colleague, uh, Jen Heap, who is uh, ex-creative director from AKQA, one of the big global advertising agencies. That's probably where our focus is, working with brands like the BBC, uh, Diageo, uh, and a real mixture of others, um, predominantly in the UK and Europe, um, but some international clients here, uh, where we're really building out uh, our offering around voice strategy trying to help brands navigate this space, where to be, what to play on, um, around voice user experience design, and actually some of the, many of these things we've been talking about around brand and audio, as well as also how to navigate these spaces. You know, Alexa is an entirely different medium in terms of just user experience, um, and so trying to kind of work through that with clients. And then thirdly, our kind of main thing around marketing as well, is that how do you actually get people to use the skills and actions that you've built? Um, and how do you bring to bear things like physical uh, in-store, things like e-commerce, things like social media to drive actions and to drive adoption um, of things like Alexa skills. So that's our big focus. Um, and it's really, I suppose, that the way that we talk about it is that you know, voice technology isn't just changing the way in which we speak to our machines, but it changes the way in which we speak to one another. And so therefore, we want to build experiences that actually make sure that the next generation of technology users continue to interact with things mm. the way that they would like to be interacted with. You know, kind of try and inhabit that kind of golden rule. Uh, you know, kind of always you know, leave the world a little bit better off than you were when you kind of came into it um, through designing experiences. Like we were talking with um, someone that we were living with and they were telling us how um, kids are now, their kids, 
it's common now to sign off or to leave an interaction by saying, be sure to like, comment, and subscribe below. It's a little joke and it's a meme, but it's like because they see that every day when they're watching a YouTube video, oh, this is how people must say goodbye. They say goodbye by saying, like, subscribe, and do that below. I think you're onto something. Like how people are hearing what's coming out of Alexa and out of Google is going to then shape how they're interacting with other people. So it's part of our responsibility as designers and engineers is we have to think about what it is we're putting out into this world because we're going to be shaping how people are communicating for a long time to come because we're here so early. Yeah. And you were talking about businesses come to you and they have design questions. They want to figure out how they can interact with this space. Are there any questions that kind of are pervasive across all of those industries and businesses where everybody is still, they see this as a black box? Yeah. There's, there's a couple. I think one, um, the big one that comes up is, you know, I, I was in a meeting last week with um, a global beauty retailer, that, the head of innovation, a global beauty retailer, talking to them about voice skills. And one of the things she asked me was like, but what about the privacy? Like, aren't these things like capturing everything and listening to me all the time? And this is someone who's in a global innovation lead role at a major beauty brand. And I was like, Interesting even you in that function have still got this perception that these devices listen to us all the time that are capturing things and are using that data nefariously. And that comes up everywhere I go. Um, it still does. And anyone outside of directly people working on voice products like ourselves um, still has a perception that, yeah, okay, I'm going to let this thing in, but it still probably is capturing more data than it needs. I saw a survey from the guys over at VoiceBot, I think last week, saying that something like 46% of people still think that their voice devices capture data that they don't need, which is quite concerning for the industry. Now, I don't, it's clearly not stopping the adoption of the product, right? We're seeing right. that wholeheartedly in all the markets, but that is a longer tail question of usage in terms of it's not stopping people buying the thing, but it might stop them using it for certain things. So when you think about any function where there is uh, health data, for example, or mortgage data, or anything to do with your banking, or anything to do with your children, um, these are all kind of categories where there's massive potential for developing experiences, but the barrier is this kind of privacy stretch issue. And mm -hmm. It's something I talk about a lot is... This idea that if you look at the story of the internet for the past decade, 15 years, we have handed over privacy in return for utility. Privacy in return for utility time and time and time again. And particularly in social media, right? And what we've seen is that particularly since the Cambridge Analytica scandal and you know, kind of everything that's gone on with Facebook in the past couple of years, from Senate hearings through to data breaches, is that that value exchange is somewhat broken and that people don't want to keep on giving away more privacy in return for what they originally thought was quite good utility, it turns out it's not so good. Hmm. And the irony is that for the autonomous, connected and enabled future that we all want to happen, we need to give away more privacy. Yeah. to get that utility because if we don't we won't get that utility we need the data silos to unlock we need the networks to be connected and we need things to be always on and, and actually listening much more than they do today to make that happen and so the question will be is that is that value exchange is there enough stretch left in the rubber band of that privacy to go to get to the utility that we all want before it breaks I think that if you, are, you know, I speak all over the world and in rooms where I ask the question of you know, talking about Facebook portal and, and devices like that, do you want a camera from Facebook in your living room? And I get a near 100% answer of no, I don't want that. Which makes me question, it's like, well, okay, if you don't trust Facebook to do that right now, I can understand why. But what will it take for you to not trust Google or not trust Amazon to do the same thing? 
you know, as much as they are the massive opportunity and we partner with them and, and believe that they've got best interest at heart, there's still this kind of underlying perception that there might be something else kind of going on and we have to kind of keep that in check. Um, and particularly, I think, you know, we're going to see a lot more regulation come into the space um, and probably a lot more of the kind of industry bodies and watchdogs that need to kind of be around to kind of keep people held accountable. Because otherwise, we probably just won't get there. Which oh, is hell. The- yeah, so many people are covering up the webcam on their laptops. Yeah, right. People, I mean, I hardly see anybody cover the webcam on their phones, are, despite the fact that they're very similar technologies. Amazon sellers who are making probably millions of dollars in revenue from China of selling little sticky buttons that go over the top of your camera. Just go over the top. And <laughs> Crazy. We were talking with Stuart Crane, who runs voice metrics, yes. and he is in his 40s, 50s, he has kids. He was talking to us about how when the um, voice machine, voicemail came out, yeah. people thought it was really weird that rather than having a person pick up, you're going to be talking and leaving a message to a machine, and there was this uncomfortability of yeah. like, people are very comfortable talking and giving away random pieces of information to another human. Mm-hmm. When it becomes a machine in this algorithm and not a human that's on the other end, I feel like people become yeah. much more uncomfortable with the situation and with the web People are afraid of the webcam, and now with voice, people are afraid of having their voices heard and taken by the big companies. And so I was actually talking to my doctor about this yesterday, and he says, Big Brother is here, but it came in a much different form than we anticipated. We always thought it would be the government, but in actuality, it's these large corporations and that there's a lot of them. And so it's, it's a much different dynamic to face because people were able to create these in a decade. You would imagine it would take hundreds of years to be able to get people to... Uh, be convinced enough to be able to go along with what you're doing, but it provides so much value and entertainment to people that they're willing to give that up to use it. And so maybe, you know, people aren't okay with having it there in their home, the Facebook portal, but they'll still buy it. That's what's crazy. Yeah, I mean, the the Big Brother analogy is interesting, right? Because, you know, if you kind of go down that Orwellian kind of tunnel the whole thing was that, you know, kind of government would have brought this along and inflicted it upon us. The irony is that we went out, bought the devices ourselves and put them in the living room. Mm -hmm. And that is an entirely different dynamic. But now we're wrestling with the contradiction in terms of what that has meant, which is that we have now brought these things in to provide us that utility, giving away that privacy. And it just is that question of whether or not that can be sustained. I believe that it can. I think we can find balances, I think, that if you look off, off the back of what's happened with GDPR, um, uh, particularly in Europe, and obviously has now affected people worldwide in terms of data capture regulations and a lot of the stuff that's happening in California and some of those kind of fast-follow statewide regulations that are happening here in the US, I think we will find a rebalancing because there has been these kind of big nationally embarrassing moments for some of the big tech companies around some of these privacy issues. Um, but you know, as much as we want things like 5G rollout, as much as we want things like IoT, as much as we believe that you know, some utopian blockchain solution might come along, um, we're still quite a long way away from any of those things having kind of largest scale adoption and certainly anywhere near comparable to the adoption of some of the voice devices that are already in market. And so it really is just about how quickly can that gap be closed where we get the ubiquity that we want, where these devices are everywhere, where they're actually connected, and that we have got the security that we want around our own data. And there needs to be that flip that happens where we go from seeing data as something that companies hold on us that we have to retrieve 
to data being something that we own and we allow companies access to when we want to. And, and we're in the process of that happening. And I think if you look at everything that Apple's doing around HealthKit data uh, and around HomeKit and their whole approach around kind of being privacy centric, I think that they're probably doing a lot to lead the way. And I think that the moves that you've seen, obviously um, Tim announced last week at CES around their services business, which is gonna ramp up much more this year, they are gonna capitalize on the fact that that privacy has been the thing that has, has allowed them to become the default device in your pocket, laptop bag, and living room. Um, and so, you know, there will be, I think, a, a much more diverse marketplace kind of 12 months from now than where we are at this point. Um, but that, that imbalance and that privacy um, issue is a big education point for the industry. And I think it's, you know, again, I, I look at businesses like ourselves and obviously our partners, uh, Google and Amazon and others, to, to be the ones that try and help kind of rebalance that. So with Vixen Labs, you do a lot of dealing with those interactions with a lot of businesses where you're having these conversations that sometimes turn to privacy and other topics. You also are involved with the Voice Summit yeah. and your role there is a program director. That's right. So how have you liked to watch Voice Summit grow? Because it sounds like the participants there are amazing and they're just becoming more and more with this next year. Yeah, I think um, when we come back to Newark in July, it's going to be a very different situation than where we were 12 months ago, uh, or at that point will have been 12 months ago. And mainly because last year, what we had was an awful lot of folks like ourselves in this room, who and a lot of the folks who are here at the Alexa conference, who are um, playing very actively in the space that they're developers, they're hackers, they're individual entrepreneurs, they're small businesses that are wanting to make a voice-first business. Um, what we're going to see, I think, when we come back around to um, to Newark in the summer is that the wave of people that are now going to use voice as their main channels or new channels that they're going to adopt, they're the ones that are going to be coming along. So you're going to be seeing you know, kind of the big banks, the big FMCG players, the big retailers, um, and the big utility companies who all recognize that voice is not just one of the things that they like might play around with at some point in the future, but is becoming a kind of must-have and the expected channel. Um, and that's happening far quicker than it's happened in previous technology revolutions. I first started out in social media and working in that kind of space when you know, kind of Twitter and Facebook didn't even have propositions for brands, right? And so you know, in those kind of early kind of 2007, 2000, kind of eight timeframe, where you know, it, was, it felt very much like it is today in voice, where there was lots of individual entrepreneurs, lots of companies building on top of the big platforms. That was when companies like TweetDeck and Hootsuite and those types mm. of people were kind of coming around for the first time. Things like Radian 6, which end up being like subsumed by the likes of Salesforce, right? The process of that happening in the voice industry is like 10x in terms of the speed that that is happening. So I think by the time that we get to Newark in the summer, you're going to see more M&A happening in this space where some of these small providers that could even be people like ourselves begin to you know, kind of either form collaborations or networks or just join forces. Um, and I think you're also going to see a lot of the big brands taking much bigger steps into that, that it's going to leave the incubators, innovation labs, you know, kind of R&D teams and be much more the purview of like digital leads, business leads, you know, kind of R&D from a pure play product perspective, those types of folks becoming much more involved in voice um, rather than it being this kind of uh, technology exploration space that I think you saw maybe six months ago where we're in Newark and I think we're probably in the bridge between that right now. Look at the coverage from CES last week. 
like the last year at CES when I was there in Vegas was all about autonomous cars, was all about driving, and there was a bit of Alexa and Google stuff kind of going on, but it was seen as the fringe. This year, you cannot move for announcements, okay, across all of the voice spaces, and that says to me that 12 months from now, we're, we're going to be in a completely different zone. So we're excited. Um, I think that you know, the team at Modev, um, and Pete in particular, who's leading that team, who I just have amazing respect for how prescient he is in terms of seeing where these spaces are going to go are doing amazing things to bring together some great uh, sponsors and speakers so this week we're opening up the call for for sponsors uh, and for speakers to come and join us um, at the summit we're going to have 5,000 people over three days We've got an opening hackathon on the monday night three days of main stage and and um and uh, seminar sessions and a whole bunch of other stuff there in the city of newark which much like here in chattanooga is one of those kind of leading cities uh, second kind of cities uh, that is you know, kind of totally uh, blitz scaling if you want to kind of take Reed Hoffman's kind of view of how to do these things um, in terms of their uh, yeah, kind of backing of voice. So you, with, with uh, Wix and Labs and Voice too, you've been uh, counseling and talking to a lot of these companies. Have, have there been any like entertainment companies going into Voice and trying to figure something out with it? Because I just met with two companies who are doing games through voice and Alexa and that actually got me thinking what other like parts of entertainment could be joining into voice technology. Yeah, entertainment, I think, is one. Entertainment, and I would broaden entertainment out beyond just movies and TV, but to think about media in general, I think is obviously one of the most obvious and actually most naturally fitting kind of voice categories, right? So mm-hmm. um, we are speaking with a number of the kind of global media and entertainment brands, or who unfortunately I cannot name, um, but around um, how do we you know, kind of really utilize voice as a property to engage with every day as opposed to those kind of big blockbuster moments that you might get in a year you know a tv series that runs for six or eight episodes you know with the netflix and amazon prime model now those things drop in a day and people binge in a weekend so how do you keep people engaged with the latest series of you or the latest series of um you know kind of house of cards or latest series of whatever 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 between that 12 month cycle between the next season coming around how do you keep people engaged with game of thrones for two years when it's off the air you know mm-hmm. um or like big movie franchises how do you know if you've just finished watching the latest in the harry potter wizarding world series and there's not another one for another 18 months how do you keep people connected with a franchise like that so i think that there's a big opportunity for entertainment um to use voice through quizzes through flash briefings through skills through wiki wikis and trivia and all those kind of mechanisms to keep people connected every day uh, and games are a massive habit former, and so that's where we see a lot of potential adoption for that. When it comes to news media, then you know the possibilities are somewhat endless in terms of syndication um, and new formats. You know, we've seen um, obviously the, the guys over at Noah start an entire business around basically turning Business Insider content into flash briefings, which who, who knew that that was a business model? But and obviously we've got the guys and friends of ours over at Gimlet who are uh, here, obviously kind of taking what they've been doing amazingly for the past few years in, in podcasting and now beginning to see that coming through into smart speaker skills. You know, what they launched last year with Chompers, which is the kids' uh, skill for kind of toothbrushing, for example, but taking everything that they've learned from building amazing podcasts and audio experiences. I think if you um, talk to, to Matt Lieber and, and Alex over at the team at Gimlet and, and what they've kind of, their vision for where voice is going to go, I think is really compelling um, from, a, from an entertainment and kind of content standpoint. So um, yeah, I, I see massive potential for that. 
And if I got it right, you said the, the, the focus of the Voice Summit is going to shift from individual entrepreneurs who are trying to test it out and establish their foothold towards major brands coming in and saying, hey, we see that this is big and that it's going to stay. We want a piece of this pie. Yeah. So with you being one of the, the program directors and you seeing this is coming for this year, how are you preparing and how are you starting to think of that with your role? How is that going to change your role within the Voice Summit Conference? Yeah, so one of the things that we're doing is, uh, you know, I love podcasts, as I mentioned. We're doing a podcast, so I think that kind of comes across. So one of the things that we've, um, so one of the things we're doing is launching Inside Voice, which is a podcast that goes behind the scenes of Voice Summit, and we'll talk to a lot of the people that are coming along. So we, uh, our first episode just went out uh, last week with Pete, talking about what the conference is about. So I encourage you also to go check that out also on Anchor. Um, so props to those guys. I, I think the thing that you're going to see also with the conference this year is that what it means is that we've gone from these kind of big topics which was much around voice design and developer workshops and things all that stuff's still going to be there but we're also going to have a lot more sector focuses as well so um, we're looking at healthcare we're looking at charity and third sector we're looking at utilities transportation media and content like all of these breakouts because there's actually different applications of voice in all of those different segments so I think um, one of the things I'm looking for and I really encourage all of your listeners to kind of let us know is if you've got a case study if you've got something you want to come share if you've got specific expertise in any of these sectors um enter in your proposals for speaking and, and running seminars sessions and panels come along and, and share it because that there are lots of nuances in these different businesses there are lots of different things we mentioned obviously things like privacy things like how do you do donations some people want purely financial gain some are just about getting their content out there you know there's lots of different models uh, so we want to bring everyone together and, and try and kind of have that dialogue yeah. you said vixen labs is your a lot of the individual team what i typically think of as a normal business voice summit is you working to bring together an entire community into a single space the last project that's taken up a lot of your time is Voice Two. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that's another one that you founded, right? Yeah. So Voice Two is um, Voice Two is a, a weird entity uh, that I created somewhat by accident last year. Uh, it came about by putting a link to a WhatsApp group on LinkedIn, and um, where I was just trying to kind of find other people working in the voice space, particularly in the UK. Uh, and in like the course of a weekend, about like 150 people showed up, which I was slightly surprised about. So we now have like a very, very active WhatsApp community, which is um, we're seeing a lot of people using that tool now to, to do this kind of work. Um, and we've somewhat pivoted the, the community into somewhere between a kind of meetup group and a think tank because we, the amount of people that we've got in there who are working in this space and sharing just great knowledge, examples, best practices. Um, so we're expanding out now to meetup groups, uh, working very closely with the Voice Summit team to try and bring some of that love over into the UK uh, and some of our partners like Sonos in terms of like helping other people build for other platforms uh, and sometimes the platforms that don't always get the limelight um, and so Voice 2 is really about just connecting people together so yeah if, if you're uh, in Europe or the UK and you're listening to the, the podcast we'd love you to join you can come and do that go to voice2.io and you can sign up um, and it's really just about community as I mentioned it's really similar to what I feel like when social first started is that I remember going to dinner with people that I met purely on Twitter in like 2008 <laughs> and it feels a little bit like that now with voices like I end up like going and just having like coffee and dinner meetings and stuff like that with people that are just we're just purely meeting up because 
a voice, but I'm meeting such amazing folks and making like some really long-standing friendships. And you know, my my relationship with Pete over at Modev is is testament to exactly that kind of thing. I was in Brooklyn for some meetings early last year. Uh, we met for breakfast. Two months later, I'm speaking at the conference. Six months later, we're working together. Right? It's wow. it's that kind of um, space right now. Um, and I think because it's so early and all of these companies are still so new and small and nimble is that it seems silly to compete with one another. It feels much better to collaborate. And so we're just seeing tons of that right now with lots of relationships with different small businesses. Um, but yeah, and because the talent pool is really rich, but very small. And so again, like there's no point fighting everyone for, for talent. We're just trying to find relationships to work with one another. And that's been really fruitful. And we've got folks in the community who are running things like the Guardian Voice Labs, Stefan and the team over there doing amazing stuff for the Guardian. Uh, Muckle and the team over at the BBC have become part of that community and really sharing a lot of the research and development work that the, the BBC is doing in voice and AI which is just fascinating uh, as well as people from consumer um, car brands uh, we've had folks in there from like Sayat and Citroen and things like that so it's just been really fascinating and I'm just excited about where that's going to go um, and how we can kind of continue to, to build the voice ecosystem in Europe and, and in the UK in particular. Picking on to that when the conference opened today um, we had a speaker Brett he, Kinsella. Brett Kinsella, yeah. he was up on stage. He's from VoiceBot AI, a yeah. major company that talks about the research and statistics around Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant. One of the articles that he was talking about that he released is phase two of voice, talking about how phase one was a focus on, oh gosh. Phase one was focused on making voice an option. So just putting the voice assistants out there as hardware and then expanding access to voice by trying to get them into more homes. Phase two is this habituate and specialize. And then he pulled up this graph of the adoption curve of technology. Yeah, the hype cycle, right? With the hype cycle, yeah. with like little flags of where each country lies. So you see the US is in the early majority. Yeah. But all the European countries, the other people where it's available, are still in this innovator stage. Yeah, still early adopters, I think, is, is where we would probably stick. I think that that's always been the case in many respects because of Silicon Valley and, the, and, the, and obviously now more Seattle and New York also in the voice space having much more presence. So do you think that that has shaped, because it was this kind of established here first, yeah. and now you're, also, you're building the foundation there now, do you think that the fact that it was established here first has given you in Europe a new perspective and a new ability to establish it overcoming a lot of the hurdles that we hit the first time or you're joining into the same wave that we've been building? I think that there's just some very different cultural nuances in some of the European markets, which... Um yeah, it, most people don't know this if you're not from there, but like if you go to Germany, for instance, there's like a real reticence to use credit cards online, for example. Most people wouldn't know that. But if you're a German and you say to people, go use a credit card and go put that in a website, there's still like a lot of people that don't want to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And, it's like, so, and, and it, it stems from all sorts of technology of which we won't go into. But you know, there are um, just different sensibilities in some of the European markets and particularly some of the Asian markets. It's wildly different, right? I mean, if you look at, you go to China and everything runs off of Tencent. You go to Europe where people don't want to use anything but, you know, kind of their, their mobile phone to do everything. And here in the US, you've just got this kind of plethora of different options. So I think it is different. The, in general speaking, you know, the UK and for a certain extent, most of Western Europe tends to be on a kind of six to nine month delay between the US in terms of technology adoption. That mm. has shortened drastically. I would say 
when it was the days of early days of mobile and the early days of social, I'd say it was probably more like a 12 to 18 month adoption. We're now down to like six to nine. Um, and I think the, the big thing that's driven that is just, you know, social media has a big responsibility for that because people are globally aware of what's available and they're demanding that companies launch quicker. You know, look at the amount of markets that Amazon has gone into with Alexa in the past year, countries that it didn't necessarily have to do, languages that are really hard, Japanese, Italian, uh, Spanish, you know, there are, you know, these are not easy things to translate and voice in particular is a hard thing to do. Um, but there's demand because people are seeing what's going on here because they've got the ability to, to see it happen uh, and they want it to come to their market quicker. Um, and so I think you're going to see that. I think that's just going to be the pattern of the next 12 months. And I think that that does give us a, somewhat of an advantage of being early. We're early in a smaller market with less players. That's going to be good for us, both at Vixen um, and I think also for us at Voice Summit as we look to expand the, the program internationally. Um, but that won't always be the case and it won't last forever. Also, you know, this is, we're still talking about the major markets being English language. And so that's fairly ubiquitous. <laughs> um, and so, um, you yeah, know, we will, I'm sure, see um, players from the US want to play in those markets. But the sensibilities are different. Conversation is different. The way in which you sell is different. You know, bringing the, if you go, a uh, classic case, go listen, go pick three random FM radio stations here in the US and listen to them between the hours of 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. Do the same thing in Europe. The content is drastically different, right? The idea of like shock jocks and like loads of jingles and really heavy kind of like sound production that you have here in the US doesn't translate so well in the UK mm. and Europe, particularly if you go to mainland Europe and any language outside the UK. And so if you try and take those learnings and put them into voice, I've seen plenty of experiences that have been built here in the US that when you transpose them into the UK, people just don't want to talk to them. Um, let alone thinking about accents and, and things like that, regional dialects, all of these kind of things. And uh, class is one of the big things that is very easily, um, particularly in the UK, class is a really interesting dynamic that in the US there is no class system, really. You, apart, there's like a very high elite, but there's not really a class system. People know where you are from what your accent is like, but that just tells you which part of the country you're from. It doesn't tell you how affluent you might be. In the UK, that is not the same. If I talk very, very English like this, that might give you an idea of where I'm from. But if I talk like that, right, from down south, like down London, it's not just about where I'm from, it's about class. And so, you know, thinking about voice design is entirely different when you go to that, let alone transpose that into like Australian, if you want to go down there and you want to go do it the down under, what kind of white, it's entirely different. So, you know, you've got to think about how voice works um, in those different spaces and that, whether that's a computer generated voice or a real one. You brought up social a few times and you also brought up the fact that you have this set of glasses on. Competition is not as helpful as collaboration. There's so much opportunity in the space that it just makes sense to collaborate with other people than to try to compete. And that's something that I feel like I've seen across the voice spaces. People are a little bit more idea open to sharing their ideas because they think that the more that we put out there, it's going to return to us tenfold. If we're talking about our ideas, if we're having this podcast where we're talking about our business, the community is just going to return that information back to us in ways that we couldn't even expect. How are some of the ways that you guys have been able to leverage social to, to point your mission across. We've been using like YouTube. We just, when we work in our engineering teams of like seven people, yeah. we'll just film a YouTube live and we'll just put that out there. Like, this is what we're doing. We, yeah. we follow a lot of, if you've ever heard of Gary Vaynerchuk, I know Gary, we, yeah. we, we follow him a lot. <laughs> yeah. So like, he's a good mentor for us, but how are the different ways that you've been implementing it? Yeah, I, I think um, LinkedIn is a really interesting medium right now is that I think I'm sure everyone is saying the same thing is that um, it has had a drastic uh, effect 
uh, on the way in which people connect in these businesses. And, it, you know, I think because voice is one of the first major technology, adop- um, technology cycles to kind of really mature during the period in which LinkedIn has had a very dominant place within the business community. Maybe it's just a microcosm and, and that maybe is happening in other spaces too. I see it across other technology verticals like VR and AI as well. Um, where you know LinkedIn has become the place to go and share content. You could probably put Medium in the same bucket as well. Um, and actually, the combination of those things um, is really fascinating. I, I've been wandering around this. Com- I, I'm in like, I, I'm just like a guy from South London that makes stuff, right? I'm wandering around a conference in like Central Tennessee here in the south <laughs> and there's like five different people that have stopped me in a corridor and say hey are you JP I'm like hi yeah and I'm like oh I know you from Instagram or I know you from Twitter I'm like no one knows who I am in the real world right but it's this little microcosm within a world where you know you don't have to uh, bring this um yeah, if you talk to Seth, Go- like Seth Godin, the marketing kind of guru, right, in his latest book uh, called This Is Marketing, one of the, the big things he says is, like, now you do not have to be famous to 300,000 people. You have to be famous to the right 3,000 people. That's all that matters. And I kind of agree. It's like, as long as pe- the right 3,000 people know who I am and what I do and, like, why I'm in this space right now and why I think it's important, that's all that matters. Um, and so I think that, you know, social is changing our ability to be famous to the right 3,000 people. That's all that matters in a minute. One of the craziest aspects for me, because I, I was born in 1996, so I was sort of born right when technology became indoctrinated in every human being's life. Yeah. Like when I was a You're toddler. The definition of Generation Z. Exactly. Like when I was a toddler, people weren't staring at screens all the time. Now they are, and that includes toddlers. So, uh, two, two toddlers that I can attest to that. <laughs> there you go. Right. And, uh, it's crazy seeing how they use it. But what I was going to say is that the, the most impactful aspect of social media to me is that you and I meet each other and I can see what you do for the rest of your life. Granted, it's the filter that you put out, but I could also reach out to you at any point that I want to. Whereas in the past, we could have met each other in the 1970s, said goodbye and never seen each other again, living one city over. So it's just crazy how much more connectivity we have, but that also gives us a lot more choice with who we're working with. And like you were saying, getting the right 3,000 people. If you were born 40, 50 years ago with no resources, your odds of even being able to reach 3,000 people in any capacity was minimal. Now people are able to do it before they're even out of high school. So how do you see that going forward where kids are, indoctrinated to their devices at an early age and they can reach millions of people around the world how do you think that's going to affect the way that people act and live i mean that is the million dollar question so i think um well done for asking it (laughs) (laughs) i think um here's what i think on that i think that there is um a time not too far away coming where actually we see a rebalancing of what this looks like Um, because we all know that there is a problem with how addicted we are to these dopamine machines that we carry around in our pockets. We just do. We all know it. Um, The difficulty for my kids, I've got a a three-and-a-half-year-old and a six-month-old, sorry, eight-month-old. You forget how old they are because of what they do to you. It's why I look like this. Um, (laughs) It's a good job that this is... I've always said I've got a face for radio. You you don't have to see them. It it really works for this medium. Uh, That's why I stuck to voice. Anyway, but the point being is that, like, I see it already in my children. The difference is that for the first time in human history, millennials are becoming parents, right? And that's really important because that is the first 
um, digitally native generation giving birth to another digitally generative, mm. um, digitally native generation. It's the first time it's ever happened. Yeah. Now, what that means is, is that we as parents and you guys as parents, as we all become parents over time, most of us, at least if you want the human race to persist, you know, um, <laughs> is that we are the first generation to have known what it was like before mass consumer technology adoption, be born into it and learn to adjust to live alongside it healthily. Mm. Questionable how healthily, but healthily at least. Um, we have the defining responsibility in this generation to teach the next generation of kids how to live with this well. Because if we don't get it right, every generation that comes next will have never known it to be different. They will have only ever known it yeah. to be fully connected. And that is a major responsibility, uh, which is why I'm so keen on building this business in this time and these types of technologies, because actually if we don't do it now, no one else will. And that's important. So the main purpose of <laughs> technology is making people's lives easier and better, kind of like saving time on the things that you would have already done, allowing time for things that you're capable of doing in the past. So like, what do you imagine you will introduce your children to when it comes to technology to make sure that they can live a great life, use technology for its intended purpose, but not spend every single waking moment of their lives looking at a screen? I mean, even simple things like my daughter, um, I let my eldest, obviously the youngest, isn't even really aware of what a TV or anything like that is, apart from like watching, you know, kind of, I was going to say a bunch of British shows that no one will know, but anyway, like, hey Dougie, go check it out, it's worth looking at. <laughs> uh, it's great animation, very funny. But, um, you yeah, know, on a screen. But so things like, I will not let her use iPad games. I'll let her use an iPad basically as a tiny television because. I know how I can control her use of television. It goes off, that's it. There's no reward cycle with television. There is a reward cycle with games and apps that have feedback loops built into them intentionally to make sure that people come back to them. If you haven't read Adam Atler's book, Irresistible, go read that, it'll tell you all about why that's important. All three of them write down a note uh, just for the audio uh, experience. Um, so, you know, things like that are fascinating because they, uh, you know, these machines have been built to, you know, ride upon our dopamine cycles and make us essentially addicted to them. And so as a parent, I see that immediately. I'm aware of it. I'm aware of my own usage of it. And so I'm trying to keep myself in check, right? And so that's why I have hope that actually many other parents I know resonate with that, that exact problem. And so that why that rebalancing might come out. It's no surprise that in the past 18 months, what have the two big uh, kind of technology trends been in the industry? One is voice, which is all about getting people away from screens. And second is mindfulness technology. Agreed. Look at the success of Headspace, look at Calm, look at all of these different techs that is essentially teaching us Mm. how to disconnect in order to be able to reconnect. And those two things come together at the same time in which we have reached peak social media and the downfall of things like Facebook. That's not coincidence, that's causal, if not correlated, is that we are already seeing that we have probably oversaturated our connection with some of these things and we need a correction in the marketplace, like any big correction that comes in any financial marketplace. Um, and that's what's happening right now. The, the question is whether or not it happens in a significant enough way and that we get over the technology hump of it, all of this stuff being so pervasive that we actually still find places where we can go where there is not tech everywhere. Uh, you need to find balance between those things. I was talking to one of my friends who is really into cars, and he was asking me, do you know 
the only lasting car brand that was kind of one of the first people to start making cars. And I was with a bunch of people. We all said Ford. It seemed like the right answer. You're from Europe. You know that Mercedes-Benz is the oldest stale standing car manufacturer. So I'm looking at all these massive tech companies, like they're half a trillion dollars, all the way up to a trillion dollars. And I'm thinking, like, who are the Mercedes-Benz? Like, who are going to be around 50, 100 years from now? Like, what are my grandkids still going to be using that I'll laugh about using when I was in middle school? Do you have, like, a company in particular that you think might have a competitive advantage because of their long-term thinking? Um, I, th- I do actually think that Apple probably will be one of the persisting brands that is still mm. here in 100 years' time yeah. because, of their, because of their focus on privacy. I think, actually, if, if that remains core to one of their, their core central tenants, then they have the ability to kind of go beyond that. I wrote an article recently which is all around whether or not this is the last generation where we'll have family-founded firms that exist beyond the generation that founded them. Because there's an interesting dynamic where you know, the model of business building that we teach people now is co-found a team, get a bunch of investment from early VC stage, do a series A, do a series B, do an IPO and exit, right? And then bye-bye. How many of those founders will be around you know, in your kind of Henry Ford examples or you know, kind of Coca-Cola or any of these kind of big brands where they've persisted down the generations? I just don't know, um, to be honest. But I think that there are a few firms that probably are around that have been, you know, started in the past kind of 30 to 40 years that might persist, Apple being one of them, businesses like HP, for example, you know, despite all of their different incarnations still continue to exist, some of the auto manufacturers. I mean, I think that Elon's in it for the long game, for example, at Tesla, but it also, he might run out of money or blow himself up or do something else horrific in the the meantime. He could do a lot to himself. Precisely. Um, (laughs) So, you know, that is a big question. Amazon is one of those kind of like fail whale kind of questions where it's, is it just too big? to fail and I think we've seen that that's not always true. I think competitions and market authorities particularly in Europe and there'll be a lot more pressure if the SEC gets its shape well just gets into any shape over here to break them up and then make them sell off different sections of it. Could It could happen. Um, I think that you know, the next four years of uh, the White House might be a, a large dependent on that. A lot of people have been talking about whether or not Amazon is becoming too influential and even though they're a trillion dollar company, you know, even though their founder is worth more than $100 billion, which still stands out oh, to me, man. that's fair. Yeah, he did lose a substantial <laughs> amount. I will say the last few months haven't been great for him, but overall, he's still doing probably better than most people. But outside of the context of that, we were kind of talking about how small businesses now, even though they get price gouged when they sell their products on Amazon, have an opportunity to sell it to people in every single corner of the world, which wasn't possible to them before. So even though you're not able to make as much money per product, the scale that you're able to sell it is a lot greater than it once was. Do you think that people will continue to use these big companies where Facebook marketplace is massive, people are selling things all over the place, the big tech companies are helping other people kind of make their small businesses. Do you think that small businesses will continue to grow off of large businesses or they'll eventually find a way to cut everyone else out and take all the profit for themselves? I mean, there have always been big businesses. It's just that we play at a much bigger scale now. Bear in mind that in the, in the kind of 100-year period in which we've gone from businesses being a million dollars to now hundreds of millions of billions of dollars, we've also gone from population boom of 3 billion people on the planet to 11. And that means that you play at much bigger scales. But the market dynamics of that means that small businesses can't necessarily persist as long as they have done, right? Is that if you want to grow to a beyond a certain scale and you want to get a certain amount of capital, you need to merge, be bought, be acquired and you know, all those different models. 
And I think that that just will be, can continue to be the story. The thing with the, most of the businesses that you cite in that kind of question are, are technology-based, and that's because we're moving to a technology-based society, and that's, that's why that's happening. Um, the question, though, is that technology-based businesses ride upon all those topics that we've discussed, right, is around data and privacy as being one big one. And that's where people get really scared about competition and about ownership and about monopoly um, and about, you know, kind of either benign dictators running these things or, you know, kind of like mass dark web conglomerates. <laughs> it's like, which of the evils do you want to run the Rock world? Um, exactly. And it somewhat is. Um, and so I think that you probably, you know, if, if the government structures come about where there might be some, you know, kind of deconstructing of some of those big companies, then maybe you might get a more open marketplace and slightly more democratized. Um, and, you know, if some of these kind of early stage blockchain players can find ways of actually doing kind of decentralized marketplaces where, you know, products can truly be sold peer to peer, there are very few peer to peer businesses in the world, true peer-to-peer businesses. eBay is not a peer-to-peer business. It is a global conglomerate business that happens to allow you to sell peer-to-peer. It's not the same thing. Um, you know. And so thinking about how do you actually get people to move to truly decentralized models, right? Like everyone says that Airbnb is the sharing economy. It's not. You're sharing something of yours with Airbnb so they can make a profit, right? That's the way that that works. If you want to go to a blockchain-based Airbnb, you might actually be able to do that, but the mechanics of doing it and the adoption of it is hard, let alone the energy consumption. So yeah, all of these kind of problems uh, persist. Um, I, I could throw in like more buzzwords at this point, like quantum computing, and then we might solve some issues, but <laughs> I, don't, like, I don't necessarily want to go down that rabbit hole. I think to answer your question is that I think the, the big guys, they've still got some room to go to become bigger than they are today. I don't think Amazon is done growing. Um, and at the same time, I don't think it is without possibility that with a few change of governments and a couple of other regulatory structures that they might get broken up. Both options are on the table. It really just depends on whether or not, you know, at the moment, the US is having a problem running its own government, let alone doing anything else. So I think that once you can solve that problem, you can move on to things like, yeah, kind of tussling with Bezos over whether or not he sells off Amazon fresh. I don't know. Um, but that might happen. The last question I've got for you is kind of just thinking we're in 2019. We're at a voice conference at the start of 2019. You just heard all about CES. Thinking about the rest of 2019 for voice, what are you looking forward to most? You're, you've got your hand in a bunch of different pots. You're talking to different people, getting different perspectives on where we're at culture-wise. What are you excited about that's going to come out with voice? Yeah, I think um, the multimodal devices is one of the big um, opportunities because I think it does solve a lot of the usability challenges that many people have had with more complex experiences that are in a pure voice place and I don't think that that gets um, away from the benefit of these kind of screen free devices right lots of people have bought screen free devices because they don't want to be looking at something but there comes the trade off of not having a visual cue which is you know a really hard thing to get around in some cases so I think that's going to be quite interesting um, I think that the big platform players are both are really interested in auto uh, and just automotive in general and what that's going to do and so I think that actually as Amazon Auto rolls out and as Google Assistant goes more hard-baked into more devices, you're just going to see people using voice in more contexts. Um, and that's going to just change behavior over time. Is that, you know, if the next generation of users get used to using voice as their primary input device for whatever it is that they are consuming, uh, in the same way that we got used to using touchscreen devices in the way that the previous generation used the keyboard and mouse, and the generation before that had command line input, right? Like, whatever you use, you tend to stick with. Um, and I think that voice could become a sticky kind of interface for the next generation of, of users. So I think that's what we're um, excited about seeing. That. And I think the third would just be 
that there's definitely going to be some uh, on the more like back end and the kind of yeah, really in the weeds of it. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of shifting in some of these early stage startups that are building stuff in the voice space. I think you're going to see some mergers, collaborations, acquisitions and departures from the market as well. Um, and so just on a B2B kind of side, I'm quite interested to see where that goes. James, it's been a pleasure having you. I think everybody is going to want to hear more about your story. So if you can plug either one of these sites or some of your socials, how can people keep following what it is you do? Or if they want to connect with you, what do you recommend? Yeah, well, so I mean, if you're interested in particularly in the European marketplace, um, we'd love to chat at Vixen uh, if you want to get in touch. So it's just vixenlabs.co. Uh, you can find us online and we're at vixen underscore labs on most social. Uh, you can find me at James Poulter on nearly every social network um, that you, you want or just Google it. We'd love it if you'd come along and meet us in person at Voice Summit. Um, of course, as I mentioned, Call for Speakers goes up, voicesummit.ai. You can go find all of that. And if you're in the UK and want to join the community, uh, voice2.io. Most of these things are linked somewhere. So Google my name. <laughs> James Poulter, founder, co-founder and CEO of Vixen Labs, program director of Voice Summit and founder of Voice2. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thanks. Cool. That was great fun, guys. Thank you. That was a wide, wide ranging conversation. Mm-hmm. Did we do okay? Like, we did really we, well. We usually don't have many people.